0: Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. Whether I'm right or whether I'm wrong, my next guest's background has always been the weather. For nearly four decades, Los Angeles came to know Fritz Coleman through his work as the weather reporter on KNBC. And when he retired from his weather gig two or three years ago, Fritz knew he wasn't done working And I quote him, as he put it, that 11 o'clock news kept me from a lot of things. Now I can do all those things that massage my soul, be curious, and discover more, All well, Fritz's passion now is the Media Path Podcast, which he co-hosts with Louise Pullanker, veteran radio producer and documentarian. With 150 episodes released so far, Media Path Podcast is a look back, at what has defined our media for the past half century? It's a journey down a new path of remembering, reevaluating our shared memories and histories. And to watch or listen, go to MediaPathPodcast.com as well as YouTube, Apple, and Spotify. And Fritz, welcome
1: to the show. I'm happy to be here, but I'm right here for the donuts and, and, the, and the bagels.
0: I have to ask you the most important question, which is, how did, you go, how did you go from comedy to weather? Because that's your background as well, which I didn't mention, but how did you get from well, comedy to weather?
1: Real meteorologists hate this explanation, <laughs> but it's a thousand percent true. I came out to California in 1980 to pursue a career as a stand-up comic. And while I was working at the comedy store, I was a a regular performer at the Comedy Store, my friend that worked at NBC brought his boss and his his boss's wife, this was the news director and the news director's wife, to see me perform at the Comedy Store one night. Mm -hmm. And when I was on stage, I told some stories about doing the weather in the Navy. I worked for Armed Forces Radio and Television in the Navy. And they forced me to do the weather against my will. (laughs) And I didn't know anything about weather. And I had a couple of anecdotes about that. And when my show was over, my friend bought his bus to meet me. And the man said, I loved your stories about doing the weather against your will. Do you have any desire (laughs) to come to Channel 4 in Los Angeles (laughs) and do some vacation relief weather casting for me? I have a weather weatherman that hasn't had a, Hasn't had a vacation in a year. I need some help on weekends. Would you be interested in coming and being a utility player? And I almost passed out. <laughs> I, was making, I was making $25 a night at the comedy store. I said, oh, my God, when do you want me to start? And may I please carry your wife to the car for you? I'll, I'll do it So uh, I had to audition. I auditioned and got the job. And I did the utility position, the fill-in position for two years. And then when the main weatherman, the predecessor to the main weather job, left to go to CBS, uh, I was bumped up to the main job and retired just a couple of weeks shy of my 40th anniversary at NBC.
0: Amazing. What a record. I always
1: say uh, it's the greatest stroke of show business luck since Lana Turner was... Discovered at Schwab's
0: <laughs> pharmacy. I'm Except you were discovered it, at the Comedy Store, not Schwab's. Yes, yeah. I, I, but,
1: I, but but they're I, both on Sunset Boulevard. Wait, right? they're, they're both real on. real meteorologists hate that story.
0: But they're both on Sunset Boulevard. Both
1: Schwab's yes, and are. the
0: Comedy Save. Store. So that there's a parallel universe for you. So yeah. Why do real weathermen, as you call them, hate that story? Because you lucked into it? Well, because,
1: listen, I don't have a degree in meteorology or atmospheric sciences. I could not get the job as a weatherman now. (laughs) With climate change and the more competitive nature of television news and so many stations doing news simultaneously and the shortening American attention span, I couldn't get the job now without a degree in meteorology or atmospheric sciences and have that little AMS seal that you see in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen. I, I couldn't get hired. These people that have the job now know infinitely more than I do. I was hired as a personality creature. I always said that my job on a newscast was to be the palate cleanser between the tragedy <laughs> at the top of the show and the sports.
0: Because the sports can be depressing, too, if you're rooting really yeah, for okay. a team and it doesn't work. Well, it's an amazing career, and now you've got this whole other thing going on. When did you get together with Louise to figure out this podcast and what it's about?
1: Well, Louise has been my friend for 30 or 35 years. She produced two of my one-person shows, and we've always been a couple of people that saw eye-to-eye on most forms of entertainment, books, politics, movies, television shows. We always kind of had similar opinions, and so then I retired And my contract in NBC, which was very restrictive, I couldn't do outside media with them, when that lapsed, she said, why don't you just come and do a podcast and we'll make a show that is just a continuation of our regular conversations and we'll invite people in to join. And I thought that's a fantastic idea. She had experience in the podcasting world. She, first of all. Was one of the founders of one of the great radio companies, Premier Radio Networks, which was ultimately sold to Clear Channel, which was ultimately sold to iHeartRadio. Radio. So she's had quite a career and she's retired from that now. Then became a documentary filmmaker She has, and then did five podcasts. Since their inception, she was tweaking and figuring out how to do it. And so, when she invited me on, I I was I just had to surf this wave that she had already created. And I'm having a blast. It's so much it's fun. It's great. You,
0: in other words, you fell into it again. You fell yes. into luck again, third time around. Right. So, yeah, that's excellent. You mentioned earlier, and I want to get back to the podcast, but you mentioned earlier about your one-man shows. Tell us a little bit about that. What what did those entail?
1: Well, it was my stand-up background. Okay. I uh, I did eight appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, Jay Leno, Gary Shanling and Joan Rivers. I opened for Ray Charles in concert. I opened for Debbie Reynolds in concert. So my background was stand-up. But what I created for myself about 20 years ago is what I'll call single topic monologues. So my first one was a show called It's Me Dad, which was about 90 minutes describing the fun and the frustration and the mystery of being a father. That was the first show that Louise produced. My second show was about divorced, divorce. That was called The Reception. And, uh, she produced that one as well. My third show is about the news called Tonight at 11. Mm-hmm. My fourth show was my first show about aging called Defying Gravity. And this new one is sort of a more enhanced and updated version of the aging process called um, unassisted living. And right now it's streaming on Tubi. It's a free streaming service. It's an hour and it's a lot of fun. Somebody called it, somebody reviewed it as an hysterical baby boomer support group. <laughs> so that's my background in comedy. I, I, I've always done that. Even when I was doing the weather, I was doing shows two or three nights a week at the improv and the comedy store. So
0: You just keep rolling along. I get the sense, and we don't know each other, but I get the sense that you're very, comfortable with yourself, regardless of where you are in the age category.
1: I'll tell you something. This sounds uh, uh, dramatic. I've never been happier in my life than I am right now. I mean, I I don't have a job to obsess over. I was a workaholic, no question about mm-hmm. it. I get to see my grandchildren. What, I, what you mentioned in that comment about the 11 o'clock news, I've often said that the 11 o'clock news, and I did it for 40 years, is the greatest speed bump to a social life ever invented. <laughs> I, I had two I have three children, two sons at the time that, and I sometimes couldn't put them to bed at night. Sometimes I couldn't do their homework with them because I had to go back to work, particularly if it was a serious weather day, a storm or fires or something like that. And so. I'm retired now, I get to pay attention to my grandchildren, I get to help my children with their parenting, and I'm sort of making up for lost time, and it's fantastic. I've never been happy.
0: Most people would think that 11 o'clock would allow you to have most of the day to be with kids and grandkids and get things
1: done. Well, I actually did, I did the 5, 6, and 11 o'clock news.
0: Ah, that's the difference, yeah. And
1: so that's a split shift. Right, right. I would start and because when one forecaster is on duty, they're responsible for all their content. So I w- I would didn't have a meteorologist build my maps and everything. I had to do all that myself. So I would go to work at about noon. I would figure out the weather story. Like all news reporters, I had to figure out what my story was that day and then go online and find the information I needed to present that story and uh, National Weather Service and other uh, services that we had prepare my presentation, build the maps, do the five and six o'clock news and over the last several years do several uh, internet presentations mm-hmm. during the year social media mini forecasts. and then I would get off work at 630. I would go home and have dinner and I'd have to be back at 830 or nine mm. yeah. o'clock. so it, although and I only lived about a mile from the station so it was great. but it's you know it's a long day yeah and it uh, it's not roofing. You know, it's not construction work, <laughs> right. but it was uh, emotionally, it was a long day. And 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 that's what leads me to explain to you that I missed all those times with my kids and some sports games I missed. And so I'm, I'm trying to make up for it while I'm still healthy.
0: Do you regret the commitment you made way 40 years ago at the comedy store when they said, hey, come on and be the utility guy? You know? And the next thing you know, you're there forever. Do you regret that decision or
1: are you comfortable I, I with it? I had pains of having sold out. Jay Leno said to me, you're either a comedian or a weatherman. You can't be both, (laughs) which is not true. I ended up being both, but I had a decision to make back when I got to California in 1980, the early eighties, that was the peak of the comedy boom. Mm -hmm. I mean, every community had as many comedy clubs as they had Starbucks at a time. But if you weren't somebody with a national reputation, a lot of TV exposure, um, you couldn't dictate your terms. I was what was called a feature act. When you would go to a club in a little town, you would have usually three acts. You would have the opening act, which is the MC, which is usually a local guy that was mm-hmm. getting his chops. Then you would have a feature act, which was the middle act, and that's what I was. That was 20 minutes, and you would do uh, 20 minutes, a couple shows a night sometimes. But you'd do six nights a week and get paid five or $600, and many times have to pay for your own transportation, I had two kids. So the decision was easy for me to take this opportunity because even though I was taking a a regular job as a weatherman, I was still performing, as I said, Mm -hmm. two to three nights a week at the local clubs. So I didn't give anything up. As a matter of fact, it enhanced my public exposure and made it easy to get more jobs around town to call Attention to myself.
0: So somehow you had to figure in how to perform in between the weather gigs. You had to be on stage, or was it on a weekend situation where you didn't have to? No, that it was between, You
1: know, if the weather was, you know, between April and October, the forecast in Southern California is morning clouds and fog, hazy <laughs> afternoon sun high in the low 70s.
0: <laughs>
1: so if everything is mellow, if there aren't fires, right. if there aren't El Nibio floods, I could and my kids got older and they'd have their own things going on. I could go out and do a 20 minute set at the improv and be back at eight o'clock, you know, because they had three shows a night or two shows a night. So, no, it it didn't. One job enhanced the other. My ability to work in a club and react to people in the audience, hecklers or whatever, gave me a good crust. And so there was no problem that could occur on live television that would throw me because that was nothing because it was never as bad as a drunk yelling profanities at you (laughs) in the back of the book. So my my performance on TV gave me exposure. My working in the clubs helped me to react, to improvise in any situation. So it was a great twofer.
0: Now you're in phase three, which is this podcast. Mm -hmm. And you and Louise get together. She gets it going. You are right there. You fall into it, as you mentioned earlier, because she has the background to set it all up. Who decides on the guests? Is it a combination of you and uh, Louise or just Louise?
1: Well, we have a producer, Dina Friedman. Okay. You know how it is. It's a slow build in podcasts. There are 150,000 podcasts in America right now. And so what you have to do is you can't look at it like the news, where if you have a couple of days with a bad rating, oh, my God, you're in trouble. It's a slow build. It takes a long time to attract attention to yourself. So what we do is we go out and seek as fortunately we are in southern california so we have this whole pool of a b and c list stars that are here screaming for attention so we can call them and ask them to the be guests on our show makes sense and we've gotten to the point now where publicists trust us with some of their top line clients mm-hmm. we have authors and singers and people that have newly released television shows or films or lps Uh, to come on. And so we will get pitched clients now. And so the booking is not as hard as it used to be. It's getting better all the time. Well, I mentioned earlier, it's
0: about 150 so far you have in the can. Who are some of the interviewees that you really enjoy? Maybe the three best interviews you've had so far?
1: Well, I think Louise would agree with me on this. Our favorite guest has been Henry Winkler, Mm -hmm. who was a friend of both of ours before we even did the podcast. Louise and I co-produced a television pilot with Henry that was purchased by Comedy Central, but in classic show business drama, (laughs) the person, the, the vice president of development for, for Comedy Central before our show aired was fired. And so all of her, you know, projects got swept under the rug and we never made it, but it was fun. We were friends, but he is, I love people. And I don't know if you agree with this, I love people who are talented, but who are comfortable in their own skin. They don't have to be condescending. They can talk to you on your level. They're interested in you. They don't want to completely talk about themselves all the time. Henry is the most comfortable, empathetic human being you'll ever talk to. We've had him on two or three times. And anyway, he, he would be our best.
0: Yeah, he comes across that way. I've seen him on yeah. interviews, and he just seems to be a very nice guy, very, ah, he's, very he's down to earth. He's, yeah.
1: he's really he He appreciates his success. The the great fun with Henry when we were pitching this show before Comedy Central bought it was to walk to pitch meetings with him and walk, go to ICM or William Morris and watch people react to him as he walked in the door. <laughs> the seas parted and he would take time with every single enthusiast, every single fan. He'd sign autographs, he'd take a selfie. He never was too too hurried to not respond to everybody. I just... I really have a lot of respect for him, and learned a lot about how to treat your fans from him.
0: And his fans, in this case, were it wasn't even the general public that were in awe of him; it were people that worked for the agencies. Yeah, yeah, that's that's, exactly. that's quite a, okay. So we mentioned Henry. How about one or two others that you decided really I, I've, worked I've out had well great for interviews?
1: in in various buckets uh, for politicians. We interviewed Adam Schiff, who was running for senator in the state of California because he was the congressman from my district. But he is true. I don't care what your politics are. I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on. He's one of the smartest human beings I've ever talked to. And it was fascinating. And he has such a grip of all the issues, the economics of politics in America, uh, where we are in our political divide. Uh, where we are in the state of California, in our our water issues and everything. Just a great interview. So I would say he was our greatest political interview. For musical guests, I have, um, I, I love music. And so we've had two guests recently, which have blown me away. The band Blood, Sweat & Tears was famous for being one of the first bands, along with Chicago, to use horns in their rhythm section, mm-hmm. right? And they had many hits during the 70s and 80s. And there's a movie out, a new documentary, about a trip that very few people knew. Richard Nixon commissioned them to be the first American rock and roll band to tour behind the Iron Curtain as kind of a goodwill tour. And there's a great documentary. So Bobby Colomby, who was the drummer for Blood, Sweat and Tears, and the producers came, and we had an amazing hour conversation about where America was when they had hits, who they got their songs from touring in Romania and Hungary and where they were rejected because they were capitalists. And it was really fascinating. And, and again, music is my thing. So, well, it's uh, funny we, you mentioned
0: we, Nixon because we tend to think of Nixon with Elvis, but not with blood, sweat and tears. That's yeah, well, this
1: was just you know he he took whoever was popular right. and who he thought would represent the youth of America as as kind of hands across the sea kind of a thing, and uh, it was a good. I'm sure it wasn't him. I'm sure it was the State Department. Some young woman in the State Department loved the band or something.
0: How many buckets? Then, uh, how many buckets do you have, Rich? You mentioned political bucket and music
1: bucket. Uh, I mean, I I'm interested in a lot of things, but I I, I like I like uh, people who are interesting in a number of buckets. The other bucket that we sort of pick from a lot in Southern California is the bucket of child stars and where are they now? Because we have so many who have transitioned out of being a child star or a young adult star into adulthood and that's not always a pleasant experience. As you know, many suffer from addictions and overuse of money and everything. But I'll give you a great example of a great discovery Christopher Knight, who was one of the children on the Brady Bunch, came on as a guest. And he turned out to be such an amazing talk, because after he got out of show business, and he still does like fan stuff with the Bradys mm-hmm. all over the United States. I mean, that's an iconic television show. He is also a computer genius. He's invented some forms of computer technology. He had his own computer company. He's called in as a consultant to set up these huge networks for entertainment companies. He's a brilliant guy. And I, it's, it's fun to learn something additional about somebody you were a fan for, yeah, uh, for I a agree. completely different reason. And so that was fun. So I have all kinds of things. You mentioned earlier, and we talked about you being comfortable and
0: particularly happy in the age you're in now. Do you find that a lot of your guests either be after a certain age or before a certain age are more interesting or is age not even a factor? Because I find as I interview people over the years, the people who have lived a life are in a way much more interesting for a number of reasons than those who are much younger. Although you I've talked to a lot of young people who...
1: What's that? You just answered your own question. That's exactly <laughs> right. If they've had some life experience, they've had some pain and some success, they've had a chance to make some transitions in their life like Christopher Knight, they're m- much more interested. And if they're comfortable in their own skin, they're a good storyteller. And here's the key, to, and I think you'll probably agree with this too. When you have an author on or somebody that's an expert in some area or has a new product, meaning a new book or a new record they want to talk about, if you do your homework and read that book and study their work, and come to the table with some information. And you're not going to ask them the same stupid red carpet questions that every other interviewer asked them. (laughs) As soon as they realize you're not going to do that, they trust you and they open up. And then it's an intimate, wonderful, far-reaching conversation. Totally correct.
0: Totally correct. The other thing that I do as a technique is I try to find out something that's not generally known about the person, either through talking with a friend of theirs, an associate, or just where I find a piece of information that's not generally known. And I don't, I'm not obvious with it, but I'll slip it into the conversation while we're talking, and that is a signal to them that I know a little bit more than the average bearer. Yeah, bear.
1: and, and, it, and and in the broad term, you just care about your guests. I mean, always. If it's if it's not a factory, it's you know, it's a, it's a human connection. So Correct. Correct. That, I could tell immediately that you were very good at your job because you you uh, did a little deep dive on some facts there. And I respect that.
0: And I didn't even believe I didn't even bring up the time you were in jail. You know, that was totally. Well, uh, that I and I
1: appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: true. (laughs) Do you ever get into disagreements with Louise in terms of a particular guest? Does it ever get to that point where she wants someone and you said, you know, I don't know. Not really. I wouldn't
1: even call it a disagreement. Our first judgment is what's good for the show. And as I said before the reason we're friends in the first place is we see eye to eye on a lot of what we find interesting there are guests that she likes would like to have on
0: that you may not be happy about her. or, or that you uh, say it again you, uh, you may not be interested in but you think it might still be yeah. good for the well, show I'll
1: give you, I'll give you an example she's obsessed with reality shows like The Bachelor and you know some of these shows, mm-hmm. the competition shows, because she gets into it like a chess game. She she manipulates all the moves and everything, <laughs> and she's obsessed with that. So once in a while, she'll have one one of her lady friends, one one of her co obsessives. Don't want to talk about that, and, I'll, and I and I'll just ask a stupid question about what they're wearing or something. But I, I can be interested in it, but I don't bring as much information or passion at the table that she does. And so that that's the only time that ever uh, has ever happened. She loves music. She's a musician herself. She plays drums and guitar. She's, you know, she did that great documentary about the castles. So she and I have very common interests. So we very seldom will stonewall a guest on one another. It just doesn't happen.
0: Occasionally, too, it's good to step out of your comfort zone. I find that if I can interview someone, we talked about someone who has lived a life, and I've talked to people that are teenagers and in their early 20s, but because of their intelligence and their talent and what they've done at an early age, I find it's also interesting to talk to those kinds of people as well. No,
1: you're a thousand percent correct. And that's another talent that Louise has. Louise has, she doesn't have any children of her own, but she has mentored thousands of kids. She had stand-up comedy, writing, and performance classes. She's mentored children. One of her first podcasts was... was uh, about having a panel of five or eight young people, teenagers, online, and they would take questions from the audience, and she just sort of oversaw that. So she has great uh, insight into positive parenting and positive child rearing. So that that, I I agree with you, and they often have, because the the world hasn't crushed them like they have adults. (laughs) They're freer with their opinions, and a lot of times they're more hopeful. So it's interesting to talk to them. Do you anticipate, in addition to this podcast, in addition to your your, your specials,
0: including, again, on Tubi, it's called, once again? Uh, unassisted Living. Unassisted if you go
1: Living. go to Tubi, it's a free service. You don't have to add another service to your long list of monthly charges. <laughs> Just go to Tubi and type in my name, and you'll get three or four letters out, and it will load in immediately.
0: Excellent. Do you think that you left at actually a good time your gig on Channel 4 in this sense that Streaming services, especially with COVID, streaming services started to take over. There's all these alternative ways to get programming, including Tubi, YouTube, etc. Do you think that you stepped away from it? at a, Your timing was once again, in a way, exquisite?
1: Another excellent observation. You're 100% right. I think I stepped off for a couple of reasons. My personal journey, I thought, you know, you get to a point in your life when you say, you know, it's, it's time to step aside and let a younger person take over. Mm-hmm. Climate change was coming in. Whether people didn't put up with just, you know, warm humor on the weather. They wanted to know people were being frightened by atmospheric rivers and climate change and all that. So it was time now for the experts to take over. Also, uh, broadcast television is in a transition period. I don't know what the future is. I think there will always be a need for local news. But I think its delivery system will not be over broadcast television. It may be a podcast. It may be just an internet feed of some kind. Mm-hmm. But as you say, streaming television is changing the face of television because it's a buyer's market and not a seller's market. When there were no streaming services, it, it, people would tune into appointment television 8 o'clock on Thursday night. They'd watch must-see TV on NBC, Cheers or Seinfeld or whatever, you tuned in with your family. And that was the moment you ate dinner and got your chores done. And that was the moment. Now you watch when you want to watch. And there's no more appointment television. And your child might be watching one thing on Netflix, and you might be watching something on ESPN in your room. It's it's a consumer's market now. And the creativity and the amount of product on streaming and, and and you know the the universes being explored with content on streaming like documentaries and and sitcoms and adventure stories has just amplified by dozens of times i don't think network primetime can can compete with it anymore so i think the whole rhythm of entertainment is changing it's gonna be really interesting to see where it goes but to go way way back And answer your question, I think I stepped (laughs) off the ship precisely before it hit the iceberg. Before
0: I let you go, in addition to the Media Path podcast and some of your stand-up work, do -hmm. you see doing other things in the near to late future, meaning writing a book, writing a play, etc.? I know you want to spend more time with the family as well, which you're doing now, but is there something else you see creatively you'd like to do?
1: I would just like to continue doing the stand-up, you know, unencumbered by my job. And uh, I, I want to write as long as people will listen to me. I, I love the creative process. 50% of the joy of doing the stand-up for me is the writing mm-hmm. process. It's the discipline of every day forcing myself to sit in front of a blank page and give it a shot. I love doing it. And as long as people will come to see me, I will, I'll continue to do it. I'm on the board of three nonprofit organizations throughout my whole entertainment career, Community outreach has always been very important to me. I love to give back because I've been so very fortunate in my career. And it's always been a family thing. My mom and dad were very active in the community. So I just, I, w- I would like to stay healthy and continue what I'm doing.
0: Well, that's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Fritz Coleman. He co hosts the Media Path podcast with Louise Pulhanker, veteran radio producer and documentarian. With 150 episodes released so far, Media Path podcast is a look back at what has defined our media for the past half century. To watch or listen, go to mediapathpodcast.com, and you can also catch it on YouTube, Apple, and Spotify. And Fritz, thanks for being on the show.
1: It's great to talk with you, Ira. You're really good at your job. Keep up the good work.
0: Thank you. Appreciate it. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.